Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we talk about the latest in zero-knowledge research and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. So this week, we're chatting with Kenny Patterson, professor of computer science at ETH Zurich and head of the Applied Cryptography Group there. Welcome to the show, Kenny. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. For today's episode, our plan is to discuss DP3T, which is a proposal for secure and decentralized privacy-preserving proximity tracing. Now, this will be the third episode that we actually address this topic. If you're interested in finding out more about it, you should have a listen to our episode with Claudia Diaz, as well as the episode with Henry DeValence from Zcash Foundation. In both of those, we talk about kind of other tracing systems, and we mention sort of the DP3T. But I'm excited that we get a chance to dig into it today. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking to you and your, your listeners about that, uh, along with lots of other stuff, too. Cool. So let's start off. Um, I'm curious where you got your start and what led you to working on cryptography in the first place. So my background is originally in mathematics. So my PhD is in maths from a long time ago. Um, but I was always interested in how maths could be applied. Um, and so you know, as a teenager, I had a home computer at home and I learned how to program. And I played a lot of games and I wrote software that could copy tapes and all of that kind of stuff that you did as a teenager. Um, so I always had this kind of real interest in computer science. And one of the places where mathematics meets computer science is cryptography. There are other touch points as well, including things like communications theory and coding. <clears throat> and I've worked on those in the past too. Uh, but cryptography is just this really fascinating intersection point between all these different topics. So um, I spent some time working in industry with Hewlett-Packard Laboratories between 1996 and 2001. And during that time, I got uh, interested in cryptography even more strongly through applied projects that I was working on at HP Labs. And then when I returned to academia, finally in 2001, I decided to you know, jump the fence and make cryptography the main subject of my research, particularly focusing on applied cryptography. So cryptography is one of those subjects where there's a lot of people who approach it from a very theoretical computer science perspective. There's people who are essentially software developers who are using cryptography and are really approaching it from a very pragmatic perspective. And I'm somewhere in the middle between these two groups, trying to get them to talk to each other and trying to get them to understand each other better. That sounds cool. That kind of sounds like what, uh, you know, two parts of our audience we're always trying to bring together as well. Good. Nice. Um, so you're, you're at ETH Zurich currently. Have you been there for a long time? I was first at ETH Zurich between 1993 and 94 as a postdoc. Oh, wow. As a cool. one-year postdoc. And I, I uh, had a great time that year, um, working hard, but also enjoying being in Switzerland and the mountains and even did some skiing. And last year, I rejoined ETH Zurich as a professor of computer science. I started off then as a postdoc and came back as a full professor, which is a slightly different existence. Um, and one of the great things about ETH Zurich is that the professors there get given the resources to build a group. So I've been able to hire outstanding people to work with me, PhD students, postdocs, and also admin uh, staff to help me run the group. So I've been able to build very quickly a nice group there. Cool. What, where were you in between? So you sort of said you went back to academia in 2001. Where were you studying or what were you doing there? So between 2001 and 2019, I worked at Royal Holloway University of London, okay. which is a small college that's part of the Federal University of London and has a very famous information security group. So I started off there as a lecturer in 2001 um, I remember arriving on day one and being told, you're teaching network security and having to learn network security. Um, <laughs> but that turned out actually to be really great for my research because there's a big intersection between cryptography and network protocols and network security, IPsec, TLS, all of that kind of stuff that your listeners will be very familiar with. So I ended up working a lot on that intersection. And I think that really helped me um, with building up the, the apply side of my research. So I worked there from 2001 till 2019. And then, um, let's say, ETH Zurich made me an offer that was hard to turn down. And so here I am. So I've been now at ETH for just over one year. I started okay. April the 1st, 2019. Um, it's not clear who the April the 1st joke was on, whether it was on ETH Zurich or on me. Um, I guess we're still finding that out. Um, I'm actually, I'm curious because like this episode is going to be primarily about DP3T, but what do you normally work on? Like what exact space field focus do you have? So my, my philosophy for, uh, for research is I do whatever I find interesting. 
in the area of applied cryptography. Um, so I work on things like um, communication security. So how do we use cryptography to build secure channels? Things like TLS, for example. I did a lot of work on TLS security uh, about five, six years ago that had some impact on how TLS looks today. So we, we basically broke various uh, algorithms uh, in the TLS context. And so TLS went through some changes. I also work on things like um, encrypting data at rest or encrypted databases. So how can we outsource our storage to the cloud for very large databases whilst protecting them from the cloud service provider who maybe we don't fully trust, but also being able to do searches over the data. Um, and this mm -hmm. is an area called searchable encryption. And it's also an area called database encryption. And it's um, it links to things like fully homomorphic encryption. Yeah, I was about to um, say this idea of doing something over an encrypted field. That's, exactly. That's interesting. So if we had super efficient fully homomorphic encryption, um, I would be out of a job because all of these problems <laughs> would be solved. So in some sense, it's fortunate that we don't. Um, and what that means is we come up with bespoke solutions to the problem and try to engineer them in such a way that they're efficient and also secure at the same time. So fully homomorphic encryption is incredibly general and therefore very, very powerful. But as a consequence, it's very inefficient. So we can, by limiting the functionality, we can build something that's reasonably efficient and secure. So it turns out that sort of in the first generation of these schemes, they had certain amounts of leakage that you could classify. And we did a lot of work early on understanding the implications of that leakage. So we're in this very strange position where we had security proofs for these database encryption schemes. The proofs identified exactly what the leakage was, but then people were saying, well, we're done now, rather than saying, well, what are the implications of that leakage from the schemes? So we did a lot of work looking, looking at that. That's what you tackled. And yeah. I guess, are you still are you still working on that? Or is that sort of, have you put this aside to work a little bit more on the contact tracing stuff? So a lot of, a lot of my day-to-day -day research has grown to a halt as a consequence of DP3T. It's wow. become all-consuming. And that's because there's a huge desire to get something done in time that it can be deployed and tested and evaluated so that we can start to maybe use it as a tool in lifting the current lockdowns that are in place all over the world. Um, I still have to teach. So like yesterday morning at 8 a.m., I was teaching applied cryptography. I was teaching authenticated encryption to my uh, master's students at ETH Zurich. And they're brilliant students. They ask amazing questions. One of them managed to completely stump me yesterday during the, during the session. And I had to scurry around afterwards and find the answer to the question, and then now I'm curious, what was what was the question? Um, <laughs> so there's a, there's this thing called authenticated encryption, uh, which is basically how we do symmetric encryption today. It's a combination of confidentiality and integrity, and there's a particular setting called non-spaced authenticated encryption. Mm. And the idea here is that we want to relieve software engineers of the problem of handling randomness. So all we ask them to do is come up with a fresh number each time they invoke the encryption algorithm. And this fresh number is called a nonce. It's short for number used once. We've actually covered that in the context of block headers, I believe. Ah, yeah, blocks, Block creation, like nonces are in there as well. Absolutely, cool. they are. That's correct, yeah. So um, in the context of encryption, though, um, the question is, well, if we want to model security, what do we ask the adversary to do with the nonces? Do how much power do we give the adversary over the nonces? And later on, I presented an attack uh, against some non-spaced encryption schemes, particularly AES-GCM, which is a NIST standard for authenticated encryption. And the student said, well, hang on, you said this before about the nonces uh, in the security model, and now you're saying this is how you abuse the nonces in this attack. Is this attack in the security model or not? And I couldn't answer the question because actually I had misstated on my earlier slide in the security model, exactly what is the nature of the restrictions on the nonces chosen by the adversary. At eight o'clock in the morning, uh, maybe I was just a little bit slow off the mark being able to answer that question. So to go back to your original question, has everything else stopped? No, I'm still teaching, uh, still designing new courses, still interacting with my colleagues, but a lot of the research time that I would normally have had is, is now really focused on DPPT. Um, and it's become an enormously complex project with many partners, mm -hmm. internal and external. So I hope we'll get into that a little bit later on. Definitely. So I'm thinking we have touched upon this in previous episodes. I do think it's worth it to define kind of what contact tracing or proximity tracing is. Yeah, maybe if you want to just say quickly what that what that kind of technique is and how cryptography or any sort of protocol fits into that, it would be cool. interesting. So one way of um, understanding this is to start by thinking about what contact tracing is not. So when you think about doing contact tracing, it's very easy to confuse the activity of contact tracing 
But then what happens afterwards once you've identified people who are in contact with each other, which is part of the kind of health system. So there's like kind of a, there's a boundary that we need to draw around this thing that we're talking about. And so as far as the DP3T project is concerned, our focus is really on enabling mobile devices to be used to identify people who have been in contact with other people um, and then be able to uh, warn those people that they may have been exposed to somebody who has been infected with COVID-19. And in a little bit more detail, the idea is that um, we have mobile phones that almost universally have some kind of Bluetooth functionality. And Bluetooth can be used to send out these very short beacons on a regular basis. And so the idea is that if you make the beacon some kind of identity for the mobile phone or the user holding that mobile phone, then later you can send and record these, um, these identities. And then later when somebody uh, does a test and finds out that they have been infected with COVID-19, then they can upload all of the recording that they made to a central server. And the central server can then say, aha, here are all the identities of people you've been in contact with. And maybe you've been in contact with them for you know, a certain duration because we have a certain number of beacons that we've recorded over a certain amount of time. Or you've been quite close to those people because we have some kind of signal strength information. And so we can now then contact the people uh, or the, let's say, the mobile devices of those people and send them an alert saying you may have been exposed. Please now get in touch with the health authority, get a test or self-isolate and so on. Now, exactly what you do once you have this uh, notification is really part of the health system. And that would vary from system to system and country to country. And maybe, you know, in the United States, it might vary from state to state or county to county. In mm -hmm. Europe, of course, it's going to be country by country. What I've described there is, is a centralized system where the matching and the algorithm is run at a central server. And what we wanted to do in DP3T was be able to move all of that computation to the phones and not share real identity information with a central server because we wanted to build a system that was had strong privacy guarantees for the users. Maybe we can actually tell a bit like the journey to DP3T, because I don't think, as far as I understand, it didn't start with like someone proposing this, but rather the formation of groups, Apple and Google announcing what they were doing. So I'm just kind of curious to hear how we came to a place where there's the DP3T protocol. Sure. So I think now about six weeks ago, um, we started really thinking about this and it really started at EPFL, which is a university in Lausanne, which is sort of the sister university of ETH Zurich. So there's a French speaking version and a German speaking version of ETH. And uh, what, they have, what is it actually? Is it Ecole Polytechnique something something? Lausanne. But my, Lausanne, my okay. French accent is not really up to saying that, so I was trying to avoid saying it. <laughs> Ecole Polytechnique Federale Lausanne, EPFL. So EPFL, much like ETH Zurich, has a, has a big uh, group of people doing security research and privacy research. And they had actually started a little bit earlier than us thinking about how could we use technology to help with combating COVID-19. There had been lots of discussions in, on Twitter and other places about, you know, could Bluetooth technology be used? Um, but the people at EPFL started on a design. And then they decided that actually they wanted to get some more help. And they knew we all know each other extremely well. Switzerland is a small country. Mm -hmm. And actually, our research community is also quite small. small. So everybody knows everybody. And they reached out to us um, and a couple of, of people at uh, ETH Zurich. So myself, Professor Surgeon Kapkun, uh, who's a specialist in uh, physical layer communication security, which is really ideal for this Bluetooth stuff. Um, and another professor called uh, Professor David Basin, who specializes in formal verification of protocols. So we all decided to, to jump in and help. And at that time, there were a number of different designs floating around with different security properties and different privacy properties. And so our first task really was to look at the design space and figure out what are the privacy properties you can achieve? What can you achieve cheaply in terms of computation and bandwidth? And what can you achieve cheaply in terms of implementation? So there's all kinds of amazing cryptographic techniques that you could throw at this problem. You could use uh, multi-party computation, you could use zero-knowledge proofs, you could use private set intersections, all of these things. But all of these things are wonderful, but they are um, not exactly immediately ready for deployment. Mm -hmm. And so we decided to KISS, keep it simple, stupid, and build a system that's really as simple as possible that developers could build very, very quickly. Using crypto that's already quite battle-tested. 
battle tested exactly. So stuff that's widely available in standard crypto libraries that developers are used to using. So in, in DP3T, in the end, we just use uh, HMAC based on SHA-256 and AES in counter mode. That's it. Dead simple. Simple as possible. Cool. That makes it easy to implement. It also makes it relatively easy to analyze. So we had kicked around a lot of different designs. And at the same time, um, there was an organization called PET-PT, uh, which was a pan-European attempt to develop um, COVID-19 contact tracing apps. And we had been working with them and uh, looking at solutions that they were also examining and giving them feedback on, on those approaches and also um, suggesting this comparative analysis. And in the end, um, we came up with this DP3T protocol, which we thought was a good trade-off between uh, privacy, functionality, and usability. And we were, uh, we were promoting that within the PetPT project. But in the end, the PetPT project decided to, um, to not fully adopt the approach that we were suggesting. And there, there were some issues for us around openness and transparency and decision-making that PetPT was using. So in the end, a couple of weeks back now, we, we split off and uh, DP3T is kind of going its own way. And we've had quite a lot of success in, in adoption, actually. So maybe we'll get into this in more detail a bit later. But Switzerland and a couple of other countries have said they will use DP3T. Cool. And we're in the process now of working with the Swiss health authorities and developers to get an app ready for use in Switzerland. Is DP3T an org, a coalition? Is it the protocol? Like, what does that term mean now? That's a great question. <laughs> um, I think it's both of those things. So it's okay. both a protocol specification and a reference implementation. Okay. And it's also a project. So, you know, it exists on GitHub. We are in the process of working out exactly what we are, yeah. what our governance model is. And it's one of those things that we know is absolutely essential uh, for the medium term. And uh, it's actually very important in terms of openness, transparency. You know, people would be quite right to ask, well, who funds you? How, mm -hmm. you know, who's paying you to do this? Do you have money from Apple and Google? Are you, you know, whatever? Um, and so we're in the process of working all of that out now. But we don't want that to slow down progress on developing, developing the protocol. Where does the funding for the research on DP3T and the implementation, where does that come from? So I can give you a really clear answer to that question. Right now, we have funding from our home institutions. So, you know, everybody affiliated with the project more or less is working in a university. And we're all doing this really just through our normal university day jobs. And, uh, you know, our senior management in those universities is aware of what we're doing. And we have broad support for it. We also have a, a grant from a foundation in Switzerland called the Botnar Foundation, um, which is uh, administered through EPFL. And it's a purely charitable foundation that donates money to um, health projects. And they've been very generous in giving us funding for our project. Cool. Are you familiar also with the TCN coalition, the one sort of existing in the US right now? There Maybe there's yeah. a few of them, but we've spoken to Henry and yeah. he mentioned this TCN uh, coalition. Right. So there's a TCN coalition, which is actually an agglomeration of a number of different projects in the US. And there are other projects in the US that are not part of the TCN coalition, at least two more. Okay. And two of them even have the same acronym, PACT, P-A-C-T. Oh, yes. So there's an East Coast PACT and a West Coast PACT. And we're actually in contact with all of these different initiatives. Um, at the same time, there's been discussion about could we form some kind of grand coalition to do this? Can we align all of our objectives? And I think it's pretty clear that all of those proposals are quite well aligned in terms of what privacy they, they seek to gain mm -hmm. for the users of the system and the kind of openness that they, that they want to take to the approach. Um, on the other hand, spending weeks and weeks and weeks negotiating over like exactly how you would be formed into one grand coalition and what the details of the protocol would be, would take a lot of effort. And um, it's not clear to us that on this side of the Atlantic that we would get a huge amount of benefit out of it at the moment. Mm. Clearly, getting some kind of solution that roams between different geographies is going to be important. But we've kind of got our hands full at the moment trying to service all of the requests that we get in Europe from Switzerland, from Austria, from Estonia, who are all uh, going with the TPPT approach. Cool. And, and now Germany too, I think. Interesting. Is yeah. there, like, is, it's all open source. So if the, those other organizations wanted to, or, and you sort of mentioned you're already in contact, so you are sharing, it sounds like, I mean, completely sharing whatever you're creating. Do you feel like is the differences between them just in the subtleties like like and maybe when we go into some of the details about like the potential attack vectors, we mm -hmm. can we can understand a little bit better about like where are the differences? Where, where do they actually exist? 
Yeah, I mean, the, there are differences, of course, um, and there are differences both in terms of security and privacy properties and also kind of at the low-level protocol details, you know, the byte formats and so on. Mm. But the differences are much smaller than the similarities are between these different decentralized approaches. That's not something we've really emphasized yet, but um, all of these approaches take this decentralized view where you try to do as much as possible on the phones and you use um, pseudonymous identities instead of true identities in the system in an effort to protect the privacy of users. So they're all really in the same, in the same circle. And then there are other approaches which are much more centralized, where there's a central server that knows the relationship between true identities and the pseudonyms that you're using. Mm. And potentially, uh, they're not designed this way, but they could potentially be repurposed to um, abuse that capability to do you know, mass scale tracking, for example. Mm. So there's, there's more that unites us than separates us uh, in that group of um, protocols that you mentioned. How does the Apple and Google announcement fit into this? So they announced that they were kind of enabling something on their, like the Bluetooth on an iPhone and the Bluetooth on an Android can now be used for this kind of protocol. But what, what, how exactly do they fit in and what, what was their announcement? I mean, I've, I've read it, but I think it would be good. Actually, I've read it. Yeah. And I can't really exactly say what they're doing. <laughs> I just know that it's open. Yeah. Okay, that's a great question. So when we were developing DP3T, we ran into this issue that everybody has run into that specifically on Apple devices. The issue that specifically on Apple devices, if you want to use Bluetooth beacons, then your app has to run in the foreground and your phone has to be switched on. Okay. So that would require people who were going to use the system to like permanently keep the phone on in their pockets. And that's bad for battery, but it's also bad for security because it means if you lose your phone, your phone is probably unlocked. And then, uh, you know, the person who picks up the phone in the, in the street can make use of your phone. So this is not ideal, and it's, it's certainly not going to make the system easy to, to promote for people to adopt and use in their everyday lives. And that's a crucial factor here, right? We have to build a system that users can use easily, that doesn't kill their battery, and where they can have pretty high level of trust in the, in the privacy and security that, that they're getting from, from the app. Mm. There's a lot of factors there before you can really get to something like you know 60% or 70% penetration of users that you need to make the app useful. So there's, you know, there's been studies done based on simulations showing that you need that kind of level of penetration before the app's going to give you a useful tool for helping to control COVID-19. So Apple and Google, if we come back to that, what they did was they, uh, for the first time in many years, got together and made a joint announcement that they were basically going to support these Bluetooth contact tracing apps by opening up an API that made it easier to use Bluetooth on the phone and would allow you to run your app in the background and still use the Bluetooth beacons at a very high level. That's what their announcement means. However, there's a couple of caveats. So one of, one of the things about their um, API that they've opened up is it more or less forces you to build a decentralized app where all of the computation uh, and matching is done on the phone. And some countries that were going for centralized approaches, so UK, France, and Germany at that time, obviously were caused problems by this. And I think it's well known from the press that they were then, let's say, in discussions with Apple and Google, trying to persuade them to change what they were doing uh, to support a centralized approach. But actually, last week uh, on Friday, Apple and Google doubled down. They had a big press conference where they said, uh, no, we're sticking with this approach. And what's more, we're making it even more private. So we're, you know, we're, we're changing the API in slightly different ways to respond to feedback from the research community. And uh, now, for example, in the initial announcement, there would be a kind of a per device root key from which all of the ephemeral identities would be generated. And now that has been removed. And now there's like a daily key instead. This is actually an improvement in the, in the security properties of the device. So the Google Apple approach is actually really, really important for the whole space because it makes it much easier to develop apps. And in essence, it restricts you to, if you want to make use of their API, it restricts you to using a decentralized approach, which we in DP3T is think, think is better for privacy. Mm. I mean, I, later on in this episode, I want to talk a little bit about like what, what we're looking at post-quarantine, how some of these sure. technologies could have impact. This is really helpful, actually, to understand a little better about how, like what exactly Apple and Google have done what you're saying is they've provided almost like a, a new API, like a separate API from what they usually have, but only for decentralized tech that is privacy yeah. preserving. That's it, Do exactly. they also verify, like, are they still, 
Is there a way that they're curating what can actually be built here? Or are they actually saying any, anyone can build anything? They have not given full details on this, but what we expect is that they will control which apps can go on the app stores using these APIs. So they would be able to do some vetting of apps. And I'm, I'm guessing that they will work closely with national health authorities mm-hmm. to um, check these apps and make sure that they comply and then perhaps block other apps that might try to use these APIs. At the same time, um, in the first phase, what I've really described so far is the first phase of Google and Apple. But in the longer term, what they're proposing to do is to build more of this functionality directly into the operating system. Oh, wow. And, um, now, they will not, as far as we know, they will not go as far as building apps themselves, but they will um, make it, let's say, substantially easier to use. So you'll, have, you'll need to have less and less knowledge of, like, of Bluetooth internals in order to make use of this technology. So mm-hmm. this is in a second phase. The exact date that that will become available is not clear, but the first phase um, is going to be available from mid-May onwards. And already the API is, is available as a public specification. So it's possible to start developing against that API already. And that's exactly what we're doing in DP3T. I guess it's also possible for researchers to start evaluating it. And this is where some of the feedback came in. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. And um, I think it's fairly public knowledge that we in DP3T and other groups were talking to Apple and Google before their announcement and explaining to them how DP3T worked and other systems worked and what we would like to see in the API. And we were delighted when it came out because it very much matched what we need to build something like DP3T. And that conversation has continued. Um, at the same time, I assume that governments that want to go with centralized approaches have also been talking with Apple and Google. But as far as we can see publicly, that's not been successful. Um, and this is extremely interesting because after Google and Apple, in some sense, doubled down last Friday uh, on going with a decentralized approach, it was on Saturday morning that Germany announced that they were changing their tack from a previous announcement about doing something probably centralized and switching to a fully decentralized approach. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I think we have reasonable expectation that they will go with DP3T as their base protocol. Cool. So there was a major um, consequence of, of uh, Google and Apple saying, this is how we would like to do it on our devices, is that Germany changed tack. So you know, one of the major European countries said, okay, we now we understand. We see what the limitations are of trying to do things in a centralized way, that this is going to be difficult to make work. We want to get something out to our users, to our population, so we're going to, we're going to switch. Actually, I think that's a really great decision. And it takes a lot of political cojones to make a switch like that. A lot of people's careers are, you know, writing on these things. Politicians generally are, if they make mistakes, then they have to resign, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And here that's not happening. Germany has managed to affect this change of direction um, without resignations left, right and center. And I see that as a really positive thing. Nice. So before we dive deeper into DP3T, I had one last question about kind of adoption and sort of other solutions out there. Um, We heard early on, I mean, at least I heard about some early contact tracing in South Korea. I understand there were some in Singapore as well. Like, what what were they using? What are they using to do that? So in both Singapore and Korea, they were using Bluetooth proximity. I think in Korea, they were also using GPS information from the phone. Okay. Or possibly cell tower information, which gives you rough um, location information. The... Broad view in Europe and, and North America seems to be that using location information in addition to Bluetooth proximity is too privacy invasive. And uh, most of the solutions I'm aware of have moved away from that. Mm-hmm. And Singapore was using Bluetooth only and not using geolocation information or GPS information, um, but was a centralized approach, which meant that at the central server, the server knew the relationship between the true identities and the pseudonyms. And so potentially... Um, could un- unmask that information and thereby build what we call the social contact graph, which is basically when an infected user reports in and says, okay, here's all the ephemeral IDs I've seen or all the pseudonyms I've seen, the server would then be capable of saying, ah, so these are all the people you've been in contact with over the last two weeks or how, whatever the length of the transcript is. And uh, that's something that we consider, I mean, I can see that that's epidemiologically potentially useful, mm-hmm. but there's something that we consider in DPTT be too much information and too privacy invasive. So, you know, for all of the people who are reported as infected, you can get a pretty much complete picture of who they've been talking to over the last two weeks. That's a lot more than you would ever get from a manual contact tracing system. 
And what we're supposed to be doing here is complementing manual contact tracing, the old school where you ask somebody, so who did you have dinner with last week? And, and from which you can't figure out, say, who are you sitting beside on the bus because that's just not somebody you know. Yeah. Um, so we're trying to complement that without doing like a massive kind of privacy invasive data overreach. Mm. Um, so the Singapore system was doing that kind of centralized approach. And unfortunately, uptake in the population is quite low. Maybe something like 15% of the Singapore population started using the app. Okay. Um, and so the diagnostic value of it um, probably is not that high. Wasn't as high. Mm. And so th- that was, but it, at the same time, though, it was an optional app. So that's interesting. Like That's true. That it was optional. And but what I kind of don't understand about that is like if Apple and Google just opened up these APIs, what were they using for any sort of Bluetooth stuff before then? I know you mentioned there was GPS as well, but... Yeah. So in Singapore, they were using Bluetooth again, but they didn't have access to um, the nice Apple Google APIs. So they had to basically hack it for themselves. Oh, wow. And that meant significant issues on, on iOS, on Apple devices. In Android, the APIs are already a little bit more relaxed, and so okay. they were able to use those quite effectively. But there are severe issues in using iOS. One way you can do it is to establish Bluetooth connections instead of just sending out Bluetooth beacons. That's even more battery hungry mm. and is also difficult to do in noisy Bluetooth environments when you have a lot of devices in close proximity. Everything's trying to establish Bluetooth connections with everything else. And then it just doesn't work. Everything just interferes with everything. I think we've all experienced that with Bluetooth, right? It's not the most stable of technologies. We, you know, I use Bluetooth at home to try to connect my phone to my Bluetooth speaker. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it sometimes doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> and I really don't understand why. <laughs> and it drives me a bit crazy. So uh, this is why the Google and Apple APIs are tremendously important in terms of building stable apps that actually you know, are going to work for days and hours hours and days and weeks at a time. Hmm. So Singapore didn't have the benefit of that. And I think the Apple app probably had to be switched on constantly in your pocket. Wow. And that, again, is bad for user adoption. Hmm. So, And this, this, this idea about the app being voluntary as well is very, very important. In, um, let's say, Western democracies or all across Europe, everything we've seen so far suggests that governments are not going to demand that their users install this app and use it. Because I think that would almost literally cause revolution, right? It's just, you know, this can't happen. Um, there's a lot of language around, you know, war. We're at war against this virus and so on. We're not at war. The virus can't read our messages and, and, and you know, fight back against us. It might mutate and then we have a problem. Mm. But we're not actually at war against this thing. So we don't need wartime measures. At the same time, these apps are only going to be successful if the adoption and the uptake is, is big enough. And so then issues about, you know, trust and ease of use and so on become very, very important. And actually, that's one of the great things about Switzerland. In Switzerland, ETH, Zurich and EPFL are pretty well regarded by the Swiss population. They are the kind of um, top universities in Switzerland. And actually, they're amongst the top universities in Europe. And generally speaking, in, in Switzerland, people trust scientists and uh, they trust the health authorities. And there's a really good relationship between and these universities and the population at large. So I think in Switzerland, we have a pretty good chance of getting good uptake for this app. I actually had a really nice WhatsApp exchange last night with a friend of mine who, she has a background in tech, but she's not really directly in the field. And she said, oh, I saw this great article about this app that you're building in Switzerland. And she said, I think it's so great that you guys are, you guys are doing it. And I said, yeah, well, it'll only work if everybody trusts us. And she said, I trust you. You will make this work. And I think that, okay, that's one data point, right? It's not scientific to extrapolate from there, but let's do it anyway. I, th- I, I think that's reflective of a general um, situation in Switzerland. And I hope that in other countries we can build that kind of trust too. And that's not technical trust, it's a different kind of trust, right? So there's sort of this idea that it's, it's a, a less confrontational approach to users. Maybe that would mean that there's more collaboration and that potentially the creators of this or the implementers of this will be listening a lot more to the average person. It's almost more like taking care of people rather than trying to figure out, this is something I said before, trying to figure out like what people are thinking, what horrible things are in their minds. It's much more like, how do we, how do we help out? That makes perfect sense. And I think there's a tremendous amount of goodwill around about installing and using these apps. Um, you see these box pop interviews on TV and on radio and people generally are, are trying to do the right thing. For example, in the UK, um, about a month ago, 
the government put out a call for volunteers to come and help delivering medicines and taking people to hospital and so on. And they expected to have a few thousand volunteers and they were completely overwhelmed. I think they had 750,000 people. Wow. A lot of those people are now sitting around wondering what they're supposed to be doing to help. And I think that's an issue too. This trust and this goodwill can be squandered if you don't do it right and if you mm. don't do it in an open way. So, for example, right now in the UK, it's, it's a very interesting situation where there's an app that's been announced. An organization called NHSX is building it. NHS is National Health Service. X is X. Who knows? Uh, I guess it means like extreme or exciting or, or <laughs> undefined. And they haven't really released any technical specifications. There's no code. Mm. Um, it's not clear whether it's centralized or decentralized. I think one can infer from public statements that it's probably centralized. And we really feel like uh, in our community, we like to do things as open as possible because that enables you to shine a light on the dark corners and see where the flaws are and eliminate them and find the bugs. And in the UK, that's simply not happening at the moment. Mm. The NHSX uh, experts have said, maybe that's what X stands for, experts. They've said that they will, they will open everything up eventually but it may be too late. It might be that the app has already been deployed before they actually uh, make it open. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of concern in, in my research community, privacy, security, cryptography, around making sure that we are able to hold governments to account when they deploy these apps. Because yes, there's a lot of goodwill out there, but that goodwill can evaporate quickly if people don't feel that they can trust the apps, if they feel like their privacy is being invaded, or if they feel like this is a system that's being built for one purpose, but it might eventually get repurposed and turned into something else. Totally. That's what that sounds like. That's what, that's the fear that kind of crosses my mind when you say stuff like that. I think this actually leads us nicely to another point or or actually this is sort of like digging a little bit more into the protocol itself. I wanted to cover some of the risks of Bluetooth enabled proximity tracing. We can walk through sort of the different categories of attacks and how DP3T tries to mitigate some of these. There seems to be sort of three main categories of risks, and one has to do with the identity of the individual. One has to do with the behavior, kind of after information is given to the, to the individual, so their behavior. And the last one is sort of risks to the entire system. Yeah. And so let's start in with this risk to sort of the identity, the data the, on the personal front? There are fundamental risks to all of these systems that they all share. And then there are specific risks that different architectures bring with them. So one thing that all systems share, and actually a lot of people engaged in this debate, there's a sort of a debate raging um, amongst the academic community on Twitter and different places. A lot of people forget in this debate that these systems always give you one bit of information that you were in proximity to somebody who was infected. Mm-hmm. Okay, So there's always one bit, at least one bit of leakage, no matter what system you build. And with that single bit of leakage, you can do attacks against all systems, no matter what the system is. And I think this is a really fundamental fact that particularly proponents of centralized systems who criticize certain aspects of the decentralized systems tend to forget or maybe don't understand. Right, It's a little bit subtle. So there's a fundamental leakage in all of these systems. And what it means is, for example, um, suppose I register, I don't know, 100 different identities in the system. Maybe I can do that, right, depending on how the registration process works. And now what I can do is I can switch between those different identities at different times. And then later, if I find out that, oh, identity 27 was notified as having been exposed, I can look back in my own log and say, well, I was using identity 27 on Monday afternoon at three o'clock. And at that point, I was talking to Anna from the Zero Knowledge podcast. And so she's over the Zoom, one, but yeah. Over Zoom. Okay, right. Sorry. Yeah. We could pretend that we're in okay, the same room. Yeah, yeah, sure. And, and so she must be the one who infected me. And that's, that's a fundamental threat for every system, no matter how it's built. Now, of course, the realizability, you know, the extent to which you can make that threat real, depends on the registration process, how quickly you can switch identities. In the extreme version, you just register one identity and then you only use the app while you're talking to that one person and then you can find out whether that person infected you or not. Mm-hmm. Later, right? So that's like the, the minimalist version, which doesn't abuse any registration properties of any of the protocols. It's unavoidable it's in these systems. Yeah. So if you want to do app-based contact tracing using Bluetooth, 
you have to accept that that's a risk of the system. The ability to potentially identify someone else who tests positive. Yes, and be able to kind of pinpoint or point a finger at them and say, aha, you're the one who infected me. Mm-hmm. And now, why is that important? Well, in maybe in manual contact tracing systems, you can uh, interview somebody and find out who they were in contact with. And then you can go off and interview the people that they identify as contacts without naming the person that they were in contact with. And then you can, you can get them to take a test. And then maybe if you test positive, you can then notify them that, you know, and then do contact tracing on them and you can, mm-hmm. you can snowball it from there. And so that's sort of, sort of different, right? Because you can preserve the anonymity of the person who was responsible for the infection in a manual contact tracing system. It's easier, more easy to do. Mm. Whereas in all of these kind of automated uh, systems, that's much harder to do. Got it. So that's the first one is this idea of potentially identifying. You mentioned kind of two strategies that somebody could use to do it. Are there any mitigations to that though? Like, so you sort of mentioned the multi, obviously the multi-account is Mm -hmm. multi-identity. That's something that's, I guess, relatively easy to tackle. But yeah, what... What are the mitigations? Absolutely. So that that attack is easy to tackle in a system where you do strong authentication during registration. But that actually runs against uh, the anonymity properties that you might want, right? Because what that means is you're somehow recording a real identity and make or a real phone number and making sure that each phone is only registered once. There are ways you can mitigate that. For example, you can make a separation between the registration process and then the running of the system and make sure the registration process enforces that each phone save is only registered once. Um, but that's actually not easy to do, and it's not, it's not easy to do in such a way that you can really demonstrate the separation between the two parts of the system, mm. the registration and then the running of the system. So it's actually quite hard to do. You can do things like you can make uh, phone solve puzzles, you know, catch buzz or, you know, Bitcoin mining on your phone or something, and that would maybe limit the number of times that you could register a given device. Um, so there are things you can do to slow down the registration process or to make it harder to, to register multiple, multiple times with the same device. But in the end, the single device, single bit attack still applies and is unavoidable. Another threat that um, all systems are, are subject to, which is basically um, we're using Bluetooth. And you know, Bluetooth is a wireless communications technology, and it can be abused in various ways. So, for example, I could record your pseudonyms. And then I could relay them to a remote location and broadcast those pseudonyms locally in that remote location. So I could make you look as if you're somewhere else where you're Ah. not. And I could do that at very high power. I could use a big Bluetooth broadcast device, like a big uh, dish, and I could fill a train station with your pseudonym. I think we mentioned one example of this where like, if there's Bluetooth enabled devices, like I think Henry mentioned sort of the garbage cans in London having chips in them. So potentially Mm -hmm. like suggest, like if you infect those, you could spread this falsely much wider than it actually would be. Exactly. Yeah. I was also sort of those, those, you know, dustbins also represent another issue, which is they, they represent the, the ability to listen to these Bluetooth beacons in a large number of places at once. So maybe you can build kind of like a network of listening stations. Now, for systems that are decentralized and anonymous, you don't actually, maybe you learn less from that than from systems that are centralized. So let me try to very briefly explain why. Suppose you have like a, a network of Bluetooth monitoring stations, like dishes that are just spread around the city. Then you can hoover up, you can gather up all of the, um, all of the pseudonyms that are being broadcast by all of the devices. And if you know in the background, because you have a centralized system, the relationship between those pseudonyms and the true identities, and then you take the two information sets and put them together, then you have a mass surveillance system. Mm. So now you can correlate in time and space real users and where they are. And I think this is one, for me, is one of the big risks of, of the centralized systems is that unless you have a mechanism for switching them off after the current crisis is done, they can be repurposed and they can be repurposed without that much effort. Mm. Another thing that we learned as well, and this is going to sound a little bit like paranoia, but we learned from Snowden and the Snowden revelations in 2013 that governments absolutely specialize in breaking into these systems and stealing their secrets. So what's to stop an NSA or a GCHQ in the UK or the French equivalent from actually hacking into the health system mm 
stealing the keys that give you the relationship between true identities and ephemeral identities, and then harvesting all this data from a network of Bluetooth stations, and now knowing at all times where all the population are. And to me, that's a really scary possibility. And for me, it's one of the main reasons why I and other people in the DPTP team have been pushing very hard against these centralized solutions. It, they, they, they do bring um, intrinsic privacy risks that I think are worse than the decentralized systems, but they also have this ability to be repurposed. And, mm. and that's really what scares me. What, what do you do then with the protocol to mitigate against that? In DP3T, all of the relationships between true identities and pseudonyms are only held on individual phones. Okay. Okay. And so when uh, it comes a point when a user is infected, they can upload a key that reveals that relationship to a central server. And then that central server can push that key out to the entire network. And so now people locally can make that connection. But only the relationship, not the identity, I guess. Exactly. And okay. also then uh, this, there's no central server that has the ability to do this on its own. Mm. There's no ability to link a mass collection of harvested data from like a network of Bluetooth, beacon, Bluetooth recorders to um, keys from a centralized database. Hmm. So there's a, there's a distinct difference in how the two systems can be you know, transformed into, into a mass surveillance network. And I know that for some, some listeners, that's going to sound completely paranoid and completely crazy. But these days, post-Snowden, I don't take any of those possibilities off of the table. We have learned much too much about the intent and the capabilities of national security agencies. Mm. So one other kind of attack or, or risk that's mentioned in the report that I'll be sharing in the show notes that we're kind of following here is this idea of revealing app usage. What could that actually do in terms of data? Like, how is that a risk? That's a great question. So the basic idea here is that depending on the user's status, whether they are exposed to uh, another user who has been infected or wh whether they themselves have been infected, the app will behave in a different way, and that behavior might be observable by an attacker on the network, for example. So, for example, if you um, are tested positive and then you're asked to upload all of your logs of which ephemeral IDs you've seen over the last two weeks, then suddenly your app is going to upload a lot of data. Now, of course, that upload is going to happen over TLS. It's all going to be properly cryptographically protected. But just by looking at the amount of data being uploaded or downloaded, you might be able to infer something about the status of the, of the owner of the app. Mm. And these are the kinds of attacks that we're very familiar with from things like traffic analysis of network traffic, for example. Does DP3T do anything to prevent that? Not right now. Um, we regard those uh, risks as something that we are willing to accept. Um, we are not really trying to protect against uh, network adversaries that do traffic analysis although we certainly want to protect the confidentiality and the integrity of the data being uploaded and downloaded. Mm. But do you think eventually this could be something you do build in, or is that more just like very low priority? <laughs> Unfortunately, it remains a fairly low priority for now because we have so much other work to do. There are well-understood mechanisms for providing protections against those kinds of attacks, for example, traffic padding. Um, but typically they cost something, like you end up uploading and downloading more data or you have to upload and down download data all the time. Uh. And, and so they're not really that practical in, on, in mobile phone networks where um, you, know, you want to minimize the amount of data usage. You don't want to kill people's data plans by, by padding <laughs> everything to the maximum extent. Got it. Okay, so let's go on to the next sort of overarching category of risk, which is basically something it, it sort of behavior affecting actions that would be malicious. So an example of this would be like a false alarm, like basically sending out across the network that a number of people are infected around you when they aren't. Or there is an infected person near you and that message is not sent to you or it's not captured correctly. Yeah, exactly. And these are, again, are risks that every such system faces. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can have attacks where you become infected you know what your pseudonyms are going to be that are going to be broadcast in the system. And what you do is you relay those to lots of points, different points in space, and then broadcast them at all of these different localities. And so now you have a user, an infected user, who appears to be in multiple places at the same time. But depending on the anonymity levels that you get, uh, then this can, this can lead to you know, um, lots of people being falsely 
identified as having been exposed. So you can get lots of false positives in the system. And so another related risk is that somebody armed with a powerful Bluetooth device could send out jamming signals and block um, signals from reaching phones. And so you can disrupt the operation of the entire system um, quite easily. Um, and then you would end up uh, essentially not notifying people later who should be notified that they may have been exposed. Mm. And again, this is completely endemic um, to all of these kinds of systems, impossible to prevent. And so maybe it's worth reiterating something. that These systems are not intended to be used in a standalone manner. They would be a complement to traditional manual contact tracing. And another source of information that epidemiologists can use to get a handle on the, uh, the situation with COVID-19. So we have to be very careful always to remind ourselves that technology that does, technology here does not have all of the answers. Hmm. Uh, epidemiologists and uh, you know health professionals have been doing this kind of thing for years. And uh, we need to help them and not think that we can replace them with technology. Got it. Is there anything else that you had to think about in the creation of this to avoid any external malicious actor from potentially like hacking the entire system or like yeah, breaking it? Absolutely. So we tried to take a broad view of, of all of the threats against our system, DP3T, but also the general class of these kinds of systems. Mm -hmm. And our analysis document tries to be comprehensive in, in covering all of that territory. And actually maybe, um, you know, I'd really love it if your listeners were actually able to read our document. And then if they see something that they think we've missed, then they should let us know. And we have uh, GitHub and you can just file an issue there. And one of the team will look at what you've written and say, ah, that's something new. We didn't anticipate that. Or, yeah, we've already thought of that. Please see section you know, 6.2 of our document. Um, so, so there are these kind of broad um, attack vectors against all such systems. For example, DDoS. Um, all these systems have some kind of backend infrastructure, which is trusted to a greater or a lesser extent, depending on whether you're building a centralized or a decentralized system. And, you know, it's always possible for someone to, to um, dial up a bot farm and then just start sending large amounts of traffic against your server. Yeah. In, in DP3T, um, because we actually also need to distribute quite a lot of information to mobile devices, we're going to be working uh, in the real world deployments of DP3T with cloud service providers um, and uh, CDNs, content distribution network providers, to make sure that we have that kind of DDoS protection and that we have the capacity that we need to distribute the information and also to receive the uploads. Cool. Um, and it's, you know, we do live in a world, um, as I said before, where people for all kinds of reasons want to do malicious things just because they can or because they really think the approach is, is the wrong way mm -hmm. for whatever reason. And, and we try to design against that. It's hard to eliminate all of the all of the risks here. So let's talk about the kind of that philosophical risk that we touched on a couple times throughout the episode. But this is this idea that like what we're doing right now and the systems that are being rolled out could potentially be repurposed, reused post quarantine to really turn every country or to turn some countries into um, surveillance states where they weren't before. So. I'm curious, I mean, I think this is a question that everybody can weigh in on. Everyone has feelings about, thoughts about, concerns about. But I am curious, like, since you're working right now on that, on that baseline protocol, how do you feel about it? What are you thinking? Yeah, this is something that actually gives me sleepless nights. Um, my, my, my dreams are filled with COVID-19 um, flying around my bedroom and... Uh, lights shining in through the window, which are like, you know, be Bluetooth beacons, all kinds of weird stuff entering my dreams. And I think that's really a reflection of, of the great responsibility that I feel. And I think all the people in the DP3T team feel and indeed all the other projects yeah. is there's, there's a fundamental question. Should we build these systems at all? Because they run the risk of taking us one step down the road towards this kind of Bluetooth everywhere uh, you know, you walk into a shop and some device starts recording your Bluetooth beacons and maybe it gets hard to switch off your beacons again. Maybe you can't have your mobile phone switched on without it transmitting these beacons at some point in the mm. future. We've had some pretty strong assurances from Apple and Google about this technology and how they plan to disable it after the current pandemic. But of course, the capability will be there still in the phones, deeply in the operating systems. Maybe it can be reanimated by malicious actors at some point in the future. 
maybe if you can have malware running on your phone, then it can be provoked into sending out these Bluetooth, Bluetooth beacons. So this is a really difficult issue. It's something we've discussed a lot internally in the DP3T team. Uh, our Slack is full of discussions about these kinds of issues. Mm. And in the end, I'll give you my personal view. We at DP3T are building a system that minimizes the privacy impact as much as possible, recognizing that the alternatives are much worse. So if we didn't do DP3T, countries would be deploying centralized systems right now. And actually, we feel that those would be much worse than the decentralized system and the, and the DP3T represents and the other projects are also trying to build. Yeah. You mentioned the TCM coalition. Um, and so for me, what I'm trying to do here is create the least worst option when none of the options are actually that great. Mm. I feel like we've kind of talked a little bit about the worst case scenario where these things are rolled out and then are converted into like the scariest type of tracking tools possible and we and and the it's Pandora's box and it's out and there's no way to put it back in but what's a best case like what's a better future like what would be an ideal rollout deployment implementation and then kind of roll back or or not i don't know maybe there's a a different yeah. third way so in an ideal world and i'm hopeful that this might happen particularly in europe I'm less uh, confident about the US because there the healthcare system just seems so fragmented and there also seems to be a lot of dysfunction at the top federal levels in being able to deploy such systems. But in, in, in other countries, you would hope that we would build systems that we can explain clearly. You know, we made cartoons for DP3T, for example, to try to help the general population understand what this technology is. We hope then that there's, there's a technology there that people can adopt safely and trust that we'll get very large-scale adoption that because of the cooperation of apple and google we'll get a system that's actually workable and doesn't kill people's batteries mm -hmm. and gives useful information that we will be able to work hand in hand with epidemiologists and understand their requirements but also be able to explain to them that this is not a data fest that this is not an excuse for them to get their hands on ever larger amounts of data because of the public trust requirements that we need to be able to explain to the public that they're giving up a certain amount of privacy, but the minimum amount of privacy that's consistent with the function of the system. Mm -hmm. And so if we get to all of that and the system actually works and we can iron out all of the issues with uh, Bluetooth interference and ranging and so on, then we get a tool that's epidemiologically extremely useful mm -hmm. and makes it possible to do kinds of contact tracing that manually are almost impossible. So the old uh, on the bus or on the train, on public transport scenario, where it's impossible to trace the contacts of the guy who was sitting behind you on the bus the other day because you have no idea who he is and you can't identify a specific bus in a specific time and you can't track down those people. But with this kind of system, potentially, you could notify them that they might have been exposed and encourage them to get in touch and get tested. Um, so... That would be my ideal scenario. And then in maybe um, maybe a year from now or 18 months from now, I think there's a good chance that we will have a vaccine. And the at-risk groups and health workers, first of all, can be vaccinated and then we can roll that out to the populations as a whole. Mm. And then we switch the system off. And actually, this is a design goal of DP3T, is to build a system that can be gracefully dismantled at the end of the crisis. Mm. We will, again, maybe need such systems again in the future. And so we want to be able to mothball our project and make sure that the, the knowledge that we gained from the current crisis can be dusted off and reused, that we don't have to start from scratch again. But I really don't want to live in a world where everybody is surveyed by Bluetooth all of the time. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, like, that idea of how wonderful the data like even even very private the epi how do you say it epidemiology let me try to pronounce this it's it's weird when you think of like the richness of the epidemiological i think i said it right there uh data that you would actually be getting i mean it's super tempting then to suggest like well what if you started tracking other things like yeah. water quality or you know maybe way less widespread but regional viruses or bacteria, some, some other medical thing. I mean, these are life-saving tools potentially. And so there's a, there's a strong impetus to you keep using them, I imagine. 
Yeah, and I think this is a huge moral dilemma for our time. And it's, it's not that different from the kind of dilemma that, say, nuclear scientists faced when they were working on, you know, the Manhattan Project. They're inventing this technology um, that can be used to generate huge amounts of energy in either a controlled fashion or an uncontrolled fashion. Yeah. And uh, as you, you refer to it as opening Pandora's box, I think that's a great analogy. The only thing left in Pandora's box after all of the diseases and the ills of the world had flown out was hope. Hope was left in the box. I'm not confident that hope enough is these days. And so I think it's what's really good about DP3T as well as that and, and other projects is that we're engaged in this debate and we're going to stay in that debate for as long as it takes. And we're going to keep pushing back on, on governments and epidemiologists who quite naturally would like to get their hands on as much data as possible. Yeah. And we have to keep patiently explaining, no, we're sorry. We, we're, we're not, you know, Jim, we can't, we can't do that. Um, to paraphrase <laughs> space odyssey. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a really difficult thing. And, but I think what's really nice these days is that our community of privacy and security researchers is engaged in that way. I mean, you mentioned that you interviewed Claudia Diaz uh, the other week. Yeah. She's one of the most prominent researchers in Europe dealing with these issues. And, Really, it's a central part of her research, and, and there are many other researchers in the same kind of camp to, to question these things and to try to hold governments to account. Mm. And so I'm, I'm confident that with a strong research community and a constant wariness, we can uh, counter the, a drift into you know, a mass surveillance state. Cool. Well, I think that's a nice point to, to wrap up the interview. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's been great to be here. Thanks a lot for having me. And I hope some of it made sense. Yeah, for sure. And thanks for sharing with the audience a little bit more about contact tracing, DP3T, which I still stumble over a little bit. I've said it a bazillion times in this interview. But yeah, and thanks for, for sharing all of this and your thoughts for what the future could hold. Thanks a lot for having me. So thanks a lot. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. <laughs>